Um, well, my name's Jack, and I'm Bethany Northeast lead pastor. It's good to see some faces I don't know, so I uh, hope to meet you at some point if you're new or visiting. Um, we are continuing this series in the book of Job. Uh, today we're looking at one of Job's soliloquies. So this is Job 29, as Silas read, and Job is going through, as he's going through his particular experience of his own suffering, um, he's kind of reflecting, he's thinking out loud about everything that's been happening. And he's thinking about God, he's thinking about who God is, he's wrestling, he's coming into contact, if you've heard me say this the last several weeks, with his humanity. And as he does this, the theme of this particular passage becomes quite clear as we read it. It's the theme of justice. Very clear. And it's this uh, vision of biblical justice that Job casts for us here. It's actually one of the most profound and articulate and um, explicit passages on justice in the entire Bible. And so this morning, what I want to do with you is just lean into that, lean into Job's vision for justice and the biblical vision for justice. But before we do that, just a quick recognition of our own context as we come to this conversation. As we come to the conversation around justice as 21st century North Americans, Seattleites, quite simply, we live in a society in which justice has by and large become a relative concept. We live in a society where where justice has by and large become a relative concept. Ronald Dworkin, who is a political philosopher, professor at NYU, once said it this way, that justice is an institution that we interpret. And so that's saying on one one hand that there exists a subjective understanding about what justice requires, and on the other hand that the subjective understanding is sensitive to the purpose the society believes justice serves. Which is another way of saying that in much of American discourse or in our society as a whole, what we we see happening when it comes to the topic of justice is that we are deeply, deeply, deeply divided. I don't think I need to tell you this. but And that's just not even around the practice of justice, but also how we define justice. We can't even have civil discourse around this theme anymore, it seems. So here's an example. Most people we ta- you talk to agree that poverty is a problem, right? Um, both globally as well as locally and nationally. Poverty is not something we celebrate. There's something fundamentally broken and something fundamentally flawed in the world, in the world that's in poverty. Where there's people in parts of the world and in parts of our own city and society that are suffering because of lack of material resource, or suffering because of systems that disadvantage their particular group, or suffering because of circumstances that are out of their control, correct? Equally true is there's people in parts of the world, in our own community, that live in the exact same cities and neighborhoods who are not living in poverty, who are living in abundance, many of us, who are not poor but relatively rich, and, and, and who are that way not exclusively, but often, this is the case, because of the systems that have advantaged their group, or the set of circumstances that have advantaged their group, or the resources available to their group. And so this is the reality. People agree. Not everybody, but the vast majority agree that this is the case, that there are systems in the society that advantage some groups and disadvantage other groups. And this is just speaking about the issue of poverty. There are so many other issues you could name around this particular divide. However, here's the thing. These same people do not always agree on the solution to the problem. When it comes to suggesting a solution to the problem of poverty, we are deeply, deeply divided. The people on the left will say, the people, they'll say, the people on the left will say this, uh, the just thing to do is this, whatever this is, to solve poverty. The people on the right, the political right, are going to say, well, the just thing to do is this, whatever this is, 
And in fact, those on the left are going to say about those on the right, well, the unjust thing to do is the thing they're suggesting, and the people on the right are going to say the people on the left, the unjust thing to do is the thing they're suggesting. In fact, the only thing that everybody absolutely agrees on is that nobody ever believes they're on the side of injustice. Um, which is what I mean when I say that in our society, justice has become a relative concept. It's really hard to nail down what is the thing to do. So here's the reality if when you come to Scripture, there is not ambiguity. There's not ambivalence. There's not even any um, murkiness around this theme of justice. It, the idea of justice in the Bible, biblical justice, is, ex, is, is explicit and it's very detailed. Um, and so this morning, what I want to do is lean into that vision with you, how the detailed, explicit vision of justice, what it is, what we mean when we're talking about biblical justice, and then how we as communities of people or as individuals can practice justice. It's not just for lawyers and judges, people with degrees. We as God's people, as you're going to hear me say in a little bit here, are people that are called to live justly, to act justly. So let's do that. What is justice, and then how can we participate in the work of justice as people, okay? First, what's justice? What are we talking about? What, you, what you're seeing in the Bible is this view of human dignity, and, and therefore a view of justice that's absolutely distinct from all the other ancient worldviews of the time. Uh, remember, the Bible is an ancient, ancient resource to us. Um, all the religions of the world of this time when Job is speaking are distinct from the Bible's view. So Job, in verse 16 of chapter 29, says that he was the father to the needy, and he took up the case of the stranger. I want to park there for a minute. The particular word used for this phrase, take up the case, is uh, translated in other English translations. That's the NIV, is to champion or to examine or to uh, search out. It's It's a particular Hebrew word that is the Hebrew word rib. Uh, It means to grapple or wrestle. Um, it's, a, it's a very primitive word. You see in Exodus chapter 21, for example, it says that people quarrel or they rib, and one person hits another person with a stone or their fist, and the victim doesn't die but is confined to bed. The one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with a staff. So you can see how primitive the word is right there because that's not going to fly today. Don't, this is not saying go hit your neighbor if you're mad at them, and if they live, then you're good. Um, but it's, it's a primitive word. Later in the Old Testament, then it begins to be used in legal discourse, okay? So in Job 29, Job 31, Job's describing his servants having a grievance with him, a rib with him. They have a rib with him. It's used of God in Isaiah chapter 3. The Lord takes the, his place in the court, rib. He rises to judge his people, okay? And so that way, it's a term that's always used in the Bible as a legal term when you see it. So which is to say it's not just a complaint between two neighbors or a quarrel. Um, it's, a, it's a legal case that you bring up, a charge. It's a lawsuit. This is a lawsuit. Bring a lawsuit against somebody who's done something unjust. So, for example, in the book of Exodus, again, there's a story of the people of Israel who are quarreling, they're ribbing with Moses about the fact that he led them into the desert and there's no water. Do you remember this story? They're mad at Moses. Why did you brought us out here to die? And they say to Moses, give us water to drink. And Moses replies to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you rib me? Why do you put the Lord your God to the test? Why do you rib God? So they're, they're bringing a charge against Moses. They're, they're putting a God and Moses on trial. 
which is really interesting to think about. And, and what's even more interesting is you look at this word in the Bible, it isn't just used of business parties or individuals, one, one business party against another business party um, in, in court. Uh, these are not domestic quarrels where there's parity between two individuals. What you see in the Bible is this is often used as the disadvantaged. When they sue those who are advantaged, or it's used as the powerless when they bring a case against those who are in power. So in Exodus 23, here's what we read there. Don't show favoritism to a rich man in a lawsuit, a rib. Don't deny justice to the poor people in their lawsuits, their ribs. So you're hearing this, this explicit vision for justice in the Bible. As, as tempting as it might be to take advantage, and I hope there's no lawyers in the room, sorry. As tempting as it might be uh, to take advantage of the disadvantage, what the Bible is saying, don't do it. Don't ever do it. Do not deny justice to the poor and the marginalized. Instead, flip that script, take up their case. Rib on their behalf. Verse 17, it describes Job taking up the case of the stranger. So that word, stranger, is the Hebrew word for a foreigner or a resident alien. So we would describe these people as refugees or asylees or undocumented people today. There's a lot of political discourse around the undocumented today. Those are the people that fall in this group. So there's a sense that justice must be offered and must be served to those groups as well, people who might not be legal citizens of a society. Uh, who might have gotten to that society illegally, we would say, illegally, regardless of their legal status, all people, according to Scripture, deserve justice. They deserve justice. Indeed, if you flip to Job 31, in the very beginning, it says, if Job says this, if I have denied justice to any of my servants, this is the term for slave. These are not just people who are serving him his food. Job has slaves. If I've denied justice to my slaves, whether male or female, that's boundary-breaking right there because women were, were not seen as full citizens, full people. If I've denied justice to male or female slaves, when they have a grievance against me, a rib against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I do? When the ultimate judge of the universe confronts me, and what this means, as you look at these categories of people the Bible's demanding we treat justly and work for justice on behalf of, the poor and the fatherless, the dying, the widow, the blind, the lame, the stranger, the slaves, the servants, what it is suggesting very clear is there is an inalienable, inviable, inherent dignity to every human person that cuts across genders, economic and social lines, national boundaries and categories of citizenship. I mean... It, the Bible has a vision for justice for all people. It's not relative. It's not ambiguous. It's very, very clear. It's, it's boundary-breaking and border-crossing. It's absolutely subversive to all the structures of the world at the time, and, and unlike anything ever since. So Vinroth Ramachandra, who's a Christian Sri Lankan scholar, he says that in virtually all ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was always channeled through the elites of the society, that the gods, uh, therefore always favored these people, whether that's a military leader or uh, an emperor or a priest, a pastor. These people are always favored. So, because these societal elites were viewed as proxies of the gods, they are always given preferential treatment in courts of law. Always. Because you would never want to offend the gods by offending a person in power. 
which is the explicit reason in the ancient laws and the implicit reason that we find in some of our modern laws, there's a different standard or degree of punishment depending on your social class or where you come from. It's true. This goes way, way back in time. And as these ideas developed, you have thought leaders like Aristotle, for example. He, as you know, is one of the fathers of modern philosophy, and his ideas have shaped not only ancient thought, but modern thought, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, even our own thinking. He once said this, and I quote, Nature would like to distinguish between the bodies of free men and slaves, making one strong for servile labor, the other upright while useless for such services, useful only for political life. Uh, It's clear that some men are by nature free and others slaves, and that for these latter, slavery is both expedient and right. That's Aristotle. And Aristotle was a smart person, much smarter than I ever will be. And yet he, along with other ancient philosophers, believed that human dignity was a function of rational capacity. And that it was dependent upon your cognitive ability, going so far as to create this thing called the climate theory, which suggested that uh, it justified Greek superiority. It said that the extreme hot and cold climates produced intellectually, physically, and morally inferior people. They believed this stuff. That some are born to be ruled and others are born to rule. And that justice and dignity and human worth are not universal commodities that we should experience amongst all people, but they're relative to the context in which you live and, and to the person or the people in a society. It depends on who you are. You know, I read an article, just fast-forwarding in time, uh, to our own time in the New York Times uh, back in 2015 around the murder of Freddie Gray. If you remember him, He died in police custody, and the six officers who were responsible for his death ended up going free because of a mistrial in the case. It was in Baltimore in 2015. There were riots. It was a really, really painful moment in our country and for that city and for his family and for many people. And as I read this article by Charles Blow, he's a journalist in the New York Times. He writes a a weekly op-ed around the issues of social justice and race. He said this in reflection on that great case, and this was 2015. This could be 2021, 2022. He said, what's clear is that justice looks different depending on your vantage point. He's just reflecting, he's an African-American man, he's reflecting on his own experience of this case and the verdict, or the lack of a verdict. For some it's intimate, for others it's expansive. For some it's the loss, the loss is stingingly personal, for others it serves a greater purpose. Justice can be defined only relative to your stake in it. Justice can be defined only to your, only relative to your stake in it. Are you beginning to see like how radical this vision of justice is in the Bible? Um, not only for ancient people, but for us. Ramachandra calls this the scandalous justice. The Bible's vision is scandalous to the ancient and to the modern mind. He says here in Israel's rival vision, it's not high-ranking males, but the orphan, the widow, the stranger with whom Yahweh, God, takes God's stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. And so for ancient times, the the God of the Bible has stood out amongst the gods of all the religions and the gods of this world as the God on the side of the powerless and, and serving justice for the poor. God's vision of justice, the biblical vision of justice, is meant to scandalize us. It's meant to provoke us. Um, am I provoking you a little bit? It's not arbitrary. It's not contingent. It's, it's, it's something that is not partisan. It's, it's, meant, it's justice for all. And this is why, just to park this in our church a little bit, 
This is why we, we have a ministry for racial justice and reconciliation. It's a core commitment to, of our community. Racial justice is not merely a social issue. It is a discipleship issue. It's a biblical issue. It's a theological issue, an issue that's at the core of what we as people of, the people of God are called to be. These are not add-on programs to your already full lives. This is not sort of following the, the, the uh, trends of culture, and we're just in the wake of those trends. These are the essence of the gospel and what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And I love this quote by Brian Stevenson, who is also a Christ follower, but he says in his book, Just Mercy, um, that many of us read over these past few years, um, he's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, and their, their work focuses on exonerating wrongfully convicted people, freeing innocent men and women, um, from, and many of whom are black, um, from death row. He says this, that, and I quote this, the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, and I'm just going to parenthetically add this, we might say the character of our church or of us as individuals, as, as Christ's followers, put yourself in this frame, the true measure of our commitment to justice cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, or the respected among us. I mean, we're called to be truthful. We're called to be people who are, you know, in, have integrity and are honest. But the true measure of our character is how we treat the poor and the disfavored and the accused and the incarcerated and the condemned. That is the true measure of our character. This is why if you look at every place the word justice is used, every, and my mom has always told me, be careful with these terms, every and never, but whatever. Every time you, use the, you see the word justice in the Old Testament, and this is over 200 times that it's used in the Bible, this word mishpat, there are always these several classes of people that come up over and over again. This word is used, and it's used to describe taking the case of and taking care of the cause of the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. These are people that theologians call the, the, um, the quartet of the vulnerable. And did you notice Job has all of them in his soliloquy? He's thinking about all of them as he's suffering. He's got his eyes up from his own life enough to say, you know what? Yeah, this is hard, but there are people in this world for whom life has always been hard. And I'm called to their lives. And the, and the reason for this was that, that ultimately in pre-modern agrarian societies like Job's, these four groups, ultimately, the, the reason for it is they had no land. They were landless. They had no right to land. They had no access to land, which also meant they had no social power. They had no standing. And because of that, because they had no land, they live at this uh, subsistence level, and they were only days from starvation. If there's any famine, invasion, if, if they lose their job, if there's social unrest, even the most minor social unrest. I'm not talking pandemic. I'm talking just even if your neighbor says something about you and you lose your, you lose your property, whatever, they're landless. They're wandering. No place to call home, which is huge in the ancient Near East. Since land equaled blessing. Remember, God promises land to Israel, and they are striving for that land for their entire journey. To have land was to be blessed by God. And what that means is that to be poor is to be cursed. It's, in the Bible, it's, it's not just these groups are materially deprived. It's not just that they're, dis, it, 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 it's that they're dispossessed. They have no connection to inheritance. To be poor in the Bible doesn't, doesn't mean to be just 
merely economically impoverished, is what I'm saying. It meant to be spiritually and socially and communally, emotionally impoverished. It's not just a lack of, uh, of money or um, resources. It's a lack of their humanity. Their humanity has been stripped. And that's what you see the Bible articulating to us and calling us out toward. It's, it's not just about relieving um, economic and physical or, or, or providing for economic and physical needs. It's not just about food and clothing and health care and housing, as good as all those things are and as necessary as they are to our survival and thriving. The vision for biblical justice extends beyond and beneath those things. It's about rehumanizing people. It's about how you engage in those kinds of activities, how you do it. Justice is about humanizing the dehumanized. It's about restoring a sense of place to those who've been dispossessed from their places. And it's intended to bring about this ex- a profound experience of wholeness to the people who experience it. There's a wholeness when you really experience justice that comes back into your life. You come in touch with your own humanity. And biblical justice is about wholeness. That's what it's about. So that's what biblical justice is. Okay, are you with me? I know it's a lot to digest. Uh, let's go to number two real quick. Um, and kind of the question, like, how might we live this out? It's a, it's a radical vision. It can be scandalous. It can scandalize us a little bit because um, we have our own views on things. But, but how would we live that out on our own lives and our families in this community? Look at verse 7 with me. Job says this, When I went out to the city gate, remember he's thinking back on his life, and I took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside. The old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking, and they covered their mouths. Their voices of the nobles were hushed. So this is a reference to a very particular type of gathering in the ancient Near East that um, was, happened in Job's time. It took place in Jesus' time, in the days of the early church, where uh, if, you remember, if you remember reading your Bible, cities and towns, villages, they're often surrounded by walls. Israel, uh, uh, Jerusalem is surrounded by a wall, and there's different ways to get into that. The city, it's a city gate. In fact, you find Jesus oftentimes, and this is very interesting, meeting people at the city gate, and that's where he heals somebody, if you remember some of these stories. They're at a gate, waiting, they're begging. This is where people would stand, sit and kind of beg for food or money, and Jesus often met those people, those entrances to the city. And it's in that space, or just outside that space, actually, that there was this specific kind of gathering that took place every day. And here's this gathering. Basically, uh, whenever the men of a community got to be pretty much my age, about 40, 45, um, at that point, their children, their, their children are usually, our kids' children are a little young for my age, but in this time, their children are, are out of the house, and that would be so great. But I'm kidding. I love my kids. <laughs> I hope they're not in here. I don't think they're here, but yeah, right? And so uh, some of you have much younger kids, and you're in for the long haul, but um, the kids are out of the house. They're working the family business. They're in their careers. They're starting their own families, if you can imagine. And these men, and you have to remember, this is a patriarchal society. It just meant at this time, so pardon me for this. But um, these men would, would hand their son the tools to the family trade, like if they're carpenters or fishermen or whatever. And they'd say, son, the business, or the keys to the, you know, I don't know if they had keys back then, the keys to the shops. They'd, son, the business is yours. You know, I'm if you've got a lot, I'm, I'm retiring. If you've got a lot of work to do, just give me a holler and I'll come and help. Or if you have, need advice, let me know. But I'm old. I'm ready for something new. Um, 
So the, the age of retirement in those days was about 40, which sounds so great. <laughs> Wouldn't that be odd? Look at all you 40-somethings. Like, there's not many of you out there, but like, oh, it'll be so nice to do something different. I love y'all. <laughs> like, you know. Um, so I'm going off a rabbit trail here. But so the question becomes, what does somebody who's retired in Israel, ancient Israel, in this particular point in history do when they retire? Um, do they join a country club and play golf? I don't like golf, so that's not an option for me. Do they vacation to Palm Springs? You know, it's rainy and wet in Seattle, and it hurt. I've, you know, arthritis, I'm going to move to Palm Springs. Do they buy a sailboat and just putt around the Elliott Bay all day? Or do you just ski at some calling pass? It's beautiful up there, I hear. Or Jackson Hole, you know, you go to Jackson Hole. No, <laughs> they don't do those things. Here's what they do. All the men, again, just the men, but um, men and women, think of yourselves in this category. If you have, well, it's just men because the white whiskers. But if you have white whiskers, if you have any white whiskers, some of you don't, but can't even grow facial hair, but you got a little white whisker in there. What you do is you go down to the city gate, just outside the city gate, and you'd sit, and you drink, and you eat, and you talk all day long. But the key is, this is retirement, the key is, you wouldn't just sit there and eat and drink and talk about the good old days and just while the day away telling jokes and stories, you know. Um, you wouldn't have meaningless political discussions. You wouldn't talk about sports. You wouldn't play card games or chess or whatever you'd imagine older men do. <laughs> These men, instead, they would fulfill a very particular function in the community of which they were a part, which is that whenever there was a conflict in the community... Remember, they're just outside the city gate. <clears throat> Whenever there's a conflict, an ethical dilemma in the village, a struggle, a challenge that the community didn't quite know how to solve or address, um, those involved in the conflict would go down to the city gate and they would squat in the dirt before their fathers and their grandfathers and their uncles and their elders and they'd say, fathers of mine, elders of mine, uncles of mine, men, there's a problem in the village, and we need your help. And the men, they would, they would gather, be gathered there, and they'd say, what's the problem? What is it? And, you know, they might say, well, the, the braces, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to pick on one of you. <laughs> braces and Hellervinsons are having a, these are neighbors of ours, so like are having a dispute. You know, Jack shot Eric's labradoodle after it pooped on his lawn. That got really graphic really fast, right? Ouch. You don't have a Labradoodle, do you? Okay, good. I haven't seen one. So the east side of the village is, is arguing with the west side of the village about water rights. There's a food shortage we don't quite know how to respond to. Two brothers are fighting over their father's inheritance. There's a housing crisis in Lake City. There's racial injustice happening on Capitol Hill. There's a mental health crisis as a result of a year-long pandemic. Are you with me? Issues you don't know how to resolve. You go down to the city gate. Whatever the situation, people would go down, bring them to their elders, the elders would scratch their beards, and they begin to discuss all day long. I once heard this Palestinian Christian, because I remember I was a missions pastor when I was back in Pennsylvania, described this to me, that part of the rules of these uh, engagements is, uh, is that no single elder is allowed to give the answer to the question too soon. They, they had to talk. It would spoil the fun. It's like, I knew the answer. I know the answer to the Labradoodle thing. Duh. <laughs> you know, like, but uh, maybe I don't actually. What would be the answer? But uh, that would be a really weird thing to happen. Sorry. But that would spoil the fun. So you're meant to talk about this all day and add just enough of your own insight just to keep 
the conversation going. And so the reason this is all important about this context for justice and how it relates to our lives is that the word used, bringing it home here, to describe the gathering of the elders is the word ecclesia. Remember, the people in Job's time were Greek-speaking people. They had been basically colonized by the Roman Empire. In Jesus' time, they're Greek-speaking people. The Septuagint, which is the Old Testament, has been translated into Greek. They're speaking Greek. They're reading Greek. And the Greek word for this gathering is ecclesia. Um, It's a word that literally means the gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public space for the purpose of deliberating. That's what it literally means. A gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public space for the purpose of gathering. And this is key because if you've been around Bethany or around me any length of time, you're going to know this. But this word, ecclesia, is the word that Jesus decides to use to describe the church. This is the word he uses when he talks about the church. He says to Peter, here's the keys to the church, the ecclesia, which the gates of hell cannot overcome. You're going to be the rock on which I build my church, my ecclesia. Paul uses the word. The early church uses the word. The ecclesia becomes the raw material. This becomes the metaphor for what the followers of Jesus would be like in terms of who they are. It describes a group of people who are given the express purpose, the express mission of adding value to the village of which they're a part. The Ecclesia was never meant to be about gathering inside four walls with some music and some sermons and some kids' programs. It's a people who are called out from their homes, not into another building, but into the community of which they're a part. And the reason that's important is because it becomes a better village because of their presence. It becomes a town, a city in which there are wise and good and true and loving older men and women who are are taking up the issues of injustice on behalf of that city. Are you following me? The followers of Jesus have been called out to be a gift to the community of which we're a part, that we'd add wisdom and beauty and help and health, that we would seek and do justice for those for whom justice is required and intended. Back in 2012, again, I was living back in Pennsylvania. I was serving as a missions pastor of a a big Presbyterian church there. I was also serving in the community uh, as a local prison chaplain. Um, it happens to be one of the things I'm most passionate about. So I'd go down to this county jail every week, and I'd lead a Bible study, or I'd taken some courses on fatherhood and fathering, so I'd lead a fatherhood class. This is back when Obama was president, so there was like money for fathering classes at that time um, in prisons, leadership, mentoring, anything I could do, I would teach. Because these men needed, they wanted resources. Um, and so as part of that, I developed a strong relationship with the jail's director of outreach programs. His name's Arnie Matos and became really good friends. And one day I'm coming in to lead my Bible study, he calls me into his office and he said, there's this inmate that's requested to have a one-on-one meeting with me, which was unprecedented. I'd never had a one-on-one. All my meetings had been with groups. Um, so I kind of hung around I got to go in this room that was really only for the lawyers, and I got to be there. They said, as long as you want, which was, I just feel like my mind's blowing here. And this young man came in. He's in his 20s. He's been incarcerated for an armed robbery with assault. He's a father with a two-year-old son. He's facing a mountain of issues in his life. And he just wanted to talk to me. He'd heard about my Bible, said he'd never been to it, pray with me, and just get wisdom. He thought I was like a wise guy, I guess. 
So we started meeting like weekly, uh, like this on a weekly basis. Didn't want to come to the Bible study, but he wanted to meet with me. And, um, and I got to know his story and, I, and all the things that led to this situation. And then we were coming up on his sentencing hearing. Um, and I had received a little bit of training in, in being a courtroom advocate. And so I just said to him, you know, I'm pretty naive. You know, I said, hey, I, could I, I attend your sentencing hearing? And just, I, I, there's going to be an opportunity during that to speak on your behalf. And it might, you might redeef, redu, re, receive a reduced sentence. It might help. Um, and he said, ah, I'm open to that. That's fine, whatever. Uh, and that wasn't why he had gotten in these conversations with me. Um, and so I did it. I showed up that day, and, he, and you know, he was sentenced. Judge asked if anyone liked to speak. I spoke. I shared what I knew of him, his character, his story, his circumstances, how these all had conspired in some ways to put him in this situation. Here I am naively thinking, oh, this is going to get this guy off, you know. The judge thanked me, sat through everything else, and then at the end of the hearing, he received a 10-year sentence, which wasn't reduced. It was actually the standard sentence. Here I am, 20-year-old man with a two-year-old son. I have a 12-year-old son now. Now I have a 12-year-old son. I can't even imagine losing that decade with my son Elliot. So I was just, I was, um, I was completely gutted. You know, I was way out of my skis. I couldn't face this group anymore. He didn't come to the Bible studies, but I just couldn't face him, so I just kind of stopped going to the jail. And my friend Arnie, he texted me and called me. He was part of a church in town. He said, where you been? I was like, well, I just don't know if I can come anymore. He's like, well, this, this guy has been asking for you. He wants to meet with you before he gets sent upstate. I need you to come in. So I was like, oh, gosh, this is not going to go well. And so I went in there, and I'm really nervous, you know, and not because of anything that might happen, but um, I just feel like a total failure. And I'm sitting there with him, and I'm, I'm just sobbing, and I said, hey, I'm so sorry. I, f- I completely failed. I shouldn't have done that. I screwed up. And he reached out, and he wasn't supposed to do this, but he reached out and, and grabbed my hands. And he held my hands, and he said, it's okay. It's, it's really okay. I'm going to be okay. And he said, thank you. I just wanted to thank you. And I was like, what? I'm like, why are you thanking me? Uh, what did I do? And he said, because you believed in me. You were the only person to show up in my hearing. You're the only person that's ever believed in me. You're the only person that's believed my story. Friends, biblical justice is about restoring others to their sense of humanity and wholeness. It's about returning people to their sense of identity. It's about belief in other people, fundamentally. And I know that's an extraordinary story. Many of you are like, I've never been to prison. I don't intend to go to prison. You get to do things, Jack, that I'll never do. And that's true. (laughs) And it's also true that you teach in classrooms every day where children are questioning their own meaning and value and worth. It's also true that you offer help and healing in clinics and in doctor's offices 
for people that are broken. It's also true that some of you deal with money as accountants and financial advisors for people who are facing huge crises. It's also true that you parent. It's true that your neighbors. There are so many contexts where this applies in your lives. If we could just respond to the invitation and the calling to be called out. Remember, the ecclesia is called out from their homes into a community for a purpose. God is calling us out. Biblical justice is about responding to that calling out by God and entering into spaces that are uncomfortable at times where there is opportunity to extend healing and wisdom and presence and wholeness. That's what justice is about. And by the way, Job is imagining a time when he's part of a gathering of elders and he's no longer part of it. He's reflecting back. Did you hear that? He said, verse 1, how I wish for that time. Like, I really want to get back to it. He's not wishing for the good old days. He's longing to be part of the, the gathering of elders again. He's been taken away through his suffering experience. He's been ripped out of that community quite suddenly. And so if you could just imagine with me for a moment, if you could somehow cruelly go into a village or a community or a city like ours in the first century and just steal away all their elders, steal away all the good and wise people that are offering their value to that community where there's trouble, I'll tell you what, the community would grieve not only for the loss of those men and those women that they loved, like they're grieving, I'm thinking, for Job, but they would grieve because they wouldn't know how to be a community anymore. There'd be problems, and nobody would be there to help solve those problems and think about those problems and address those problems. Without the influence of the ecclesia, the community would be lost. And so I want to challenge us with this question. Would our church be taken away from our neighborhood. And we weren't during COVID. Thank God. Would our church be taken away from our neighborhood? Would we as individuals be taken away? Would our congregation be taken away? Would anybody notice? Do these people know we're here right now? Do your neighbors know you're there right now? Um... Are they grateful for your mere presence in their community? I don't hold out hope for our church that we'd have the best worship or the best preaching or the best youth programs or the best building. I don't hold out hope for any of that. I don't care about any of that, ultimately. What I hold out hope for, and I hold on to hope for every day, is that our neighborhood would grieve at the thought that we might be taken away. That's in a way what Job reminds us of today and is inviting us out toward. We've been given this express mission and purpose to be a people who by virtue of our presence here, individually and collectively, add beauty and health and hope and healing. I mean, who, as Prophet Micah once said, do justice, <laughs> Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. That's all you got to do. And so might we as people just be those people as we're called out. You're going you're gonna to be called out, invited out in a few moments. Go knowing that God is both for us and with us, but we are going participating 
in the work of God, in God's vision for justice. We participate in that. Might we have the faith and the tenacity and the courage to participate in that vision? Might we be people who indeed, like Job, wear justice as our sweatshirts and our belts and our shoes, our garments when you go to work in the morning? Might justice roll down like waters, as Amos says, and righteousness as an ever-flowing stream? That's my vision and my hope for us as a community. Austin and Jason, can I invite you guys back up? And I believe kids will start coming in. Come on, hey, Amy, come on in. Let them come in. Yeah. Remind me what you guys were talking about in class. All right. Here's your little, for the parents, some of you just get to talk about this. You don't have kids or you're not here with your kids. Here's your homework for the day. I'd love for you to engage with your family about how what we've just talked about, justice, connects to how these young people are learning to follow Jesus. Have that conversation. See what comes up for you. Okay. And let me pray. Kids, can you, uh, kids who just came in, can you pray with me? We're just going to pray and then we're going to worship one more with one or two more songs. God, thanks for uh, the work you've been doing all morning in, in teaching us, informing us. I love what Amy just said, how following you is the opposite of following ourselves. You've called us out, God. You invited us out into this world. You've shared with us your vision for people. God, give us the faith to live into that vision as families, as a community. We thank you for your calling on our lives, God. We think it's not just about us, that we get to be part of a community of people who are being called out. We thank you so much for your presence, Lord, in this world. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.